Hello, Internet. Welcome to episode 170 of the Sorting Calibers podcast, the Second Amendment podcast that has a little bit for everyone. I'm Aaron Paulette. I have taken the reins. This is a mutiny. Weird is off visiting the head, and the inmates are running the asylum. With me, not as always, is that a wacky transplant from New York, David. How are you doing today, David? Har, I be doing fine, Captain. Yar. I do be thinking the Tokaka Pirate Day be on the 19th, yar? You said mutiny, I just went all pirate, it's just... Well, yes, but, uh, I be... But yes. I be agreeing with you. Which means... Which means that, uh... Our, our patrons would be getting this oh, a wee bit early, but, uh... But the, the, the regular listeners, they be listening to this the day after Talk Like a Pirate Day, yar. Yar. <laughs> Uh, so that aside, uh, by the way, Weird does not know we're doing this. He's he, he's literally taking a tinkle. He's going to come in any minute. It's going to be hilarious. I mean, I, 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 I am here and I'm frightened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David, you talk too long about chinchillas. But hey, how are you doing, David? I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, it's good to be home. I was away for the weekend. I got to shoot some really cool guns. And uh, Well, did you hurt them? To... Pardon? Did you hurt them? I did not hurt them. Well, why were you I shooting shot, them? I shot. I shot with them. Okay, but you discharged I, the weapons, Aaron. Yes, uh, I. Got you made it shoot. weird. You made it creepy. Stop doing that. <laughs> I got to shoot a Stemple submachine gun in nine millimeter configuration. I got to shoot an actual Suomi, Ooh. which, holy crap! I understand what people say when they say that's the best submachine gun of that era. It's it's a bit on the heavy side, but. It just makes it so gentle for an open bolt gun. Kind of like a Thompson, I've been told. It's more wieldy than a Thompson. The Thompson, mm. the stock design on a Thompson is just not. Mm-hmm. It, and Thompson's weigh as much of a, as a Komatsu dump truck. Mm. Now, I I haven't shot a Swimmy. I haven't shot a Papa Shaw either. Is there any chance you have? Because I'm interested in how they compare. Um. I shot a semi-auto 16-inch barreled version of the the Pepsha 41 uh, 41 so it's not a perfect comparison well i mean no it's not cuz i was actually asking about full auto but all right yeah so i, I that's as far that's as close as i can get to it is, okay. is that aspect so unfortunately but but what's your answer the the suomi um much smoother and of course without that extra barrel length out front the balance is better so even on full auto it was smoother Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I mean, for any of our listeners who have ever shot an open bolt submachine gun, they know what we're talking about. For those who haven't, with an open bolt submachine gun, the bolt is held to the rear until you pull the trigger. Then the bolt slams forward and fires, and then that blows the bolt back. So there's this kind of double impact sensation, and it's a little disconcerting when you're brand new to that type of, of firearm. But yeah, that that's Suomi. It was not difficult to to keep bursts on target. Nice. I mean, the Stemple was very nice too, but it there was nothing um, historic about it, other than the fact that right before the '86 ban, uh, is it George Stemple, John? I forget the fellow's first name, but Mister Stemple made a whole bunch of basic tube receivers and registered them. <laughs> And you can get kits for for all sorts of variants. Um, but then I also got to shoot 
was a, uh, a G43, sometimes referred to as Hitler's Garand. It's an eight millimeter semi-automatic box magazine fed rifle. So it also bears some relation to the, uh, the Russian SVT-40 in, uh, in regards to, of its, its mechanism. But that thing, that was, that was hysterical because it's, it's an eight millimeter Mauser rifle. So yeah, a lot of danger at the muzzle. There's almost as much danger at the ejection. Wow. Yeah, we were firing at an outdoor range, and they had uh, metal roofing about 12 or 14 feet up. And it was there were sections with gaps for increased ventilation. And I fire one round, and the ejected casing goes up through the gap and lands on the metal roof. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I fire the round, and we hear it hit the metal roof. And I glance over because I figured it hit the underside and was going to land on somebody. And then we hear tink, 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 as it rolls down. <laughs> so what were you doing that you were able to shoot all these fun, interesting guns? Uh, I went to an event that Mad Mike hosts annually, and I finally managed to get there. Oh, um, Shoots and Boom and Vigor? Yes. It <sighs> didn't go quite as planned because there were some, uh, some issues with the scheduling, but we made it work, and it worked well. Yeah, one of these days I'd like to attend. Yes, I, I've been saying that for multiple years, and this was the year I actually attended. He did say that he's talking about doing another mid-year one in March. Well, March isn't mid-year. Well, compared, uh, sorry, mid between the two, the normal September okay. events. Ah, okay. Sorry, I, I should have been more clear on but that. But on the other oh. hand, March is my birth month. Hey. So, yeah. Sounds like somebody needs yeah. to get herself a nice birthday present. Yeah, sounds like. Guns. I also got to shoot an FN forty nine, also an eight Mauser, which is it was a pre war design by Dudion Saïd, who was the man who finished the the uh, high power after Browning died, mm -hmm. and he was also involved with Browning. He is sometimes referred to as Browning's understudy, which is not giving the man the credit he deserved. But the FN forty nine was an old school battle rifle when it was designed, but it was the M one Garand to the FAL and M 14. So essentially imagine an FAL, but with a traditional wooden stock and a, uh, a, a, a fixed box magazine that fed through stripper clips. The box magazine was removable. It was not readily removable. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it is a gorgeous rifle. And also, as I said, an eight millimeter Mauser, this particular version, and so smooth. You, you, the, the G43, because of semi auto, wasn't as punishing as, say, an eight millimeter Mauser 98K. But the FN49 made it brutal. It was just such a sweet rifle to shoot. So I don't think we're going to be able to cap David's weekend at all. So why bother? Uh, weird. How about we just go straight into the main topic? Uh, I think we could do that. <laughs> so, so you don't want to hear about the rest of the guns I got to shoot? Um, normally, yes, but we're already running kind of long. Okay. <laughs> Would you like me to step out so you guys can finish the show so I don't? Extend it even further, because you know I can talk. <laughs> yes, yes, you can.
Okay, everyone, say goodbye to our special brief emergency co-host, David. Bye, David. Good night, David. <laughs> Mutineer. Yar! Hey, that's mutineering. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, what a surprise this was. Uh, I, I was actually hoping you would take longer to micturate, and we would be well into things. Oh, well. I mean, I was more than comfortable to sit to stand back and get out of the way. Oh, so on to our main topic, Aaron. Uh, of course, I think it was the last show we talked about how the uh, the pistol purchase permit in North Carolina was unfortunately vetoed. And or another again, way I to gave... put it, and, or another way to put it, the North Carolina governor uh, decided to uphold a Jim Crow law. Correct. And I noted that the the governor had told all sorts of, I mean, stretch truths at best. We can we can decide whether or not to straight out call them lies or not. Uh, that that is uh, that's up to the eyes of the beholder. Uh, but but turns out lies. <laughs> it turns out that uh, grassroots North Carolina, which is the uh, the Second Amendment uh, uh, activist group for North North Carolina is uh, uh is demanding disciplinary action against Natasha Mark uh, Marcus for alleged false claims made uh during a floor debate about the state's pistol purchase permit and uh let's see if I can get the exact quote here cuz I actually I have had to grab two two separate reports they're both really good reports but this one had the actual quote on there and uh it said uh in mecklenburg county in the last fiscal year over 2300 permit applications passed the NICS background checks but failed the permit application so if this bill passes all 2300 uh, plus of those applicants will have a new unrestricted pass to purchase a handgun i mean i would argue and i think grassroots north carolina would argue that this is a deep flaw in in the uh the good character or good cause i'm trying to remember what the actual verbiage it is for the if the police chief don't like you he can he can tell you no mm -hmm. and of course when this law was made the whole point was that uh that uh blacks native americans and poor white sharecroppers could be told to go pound sand when they wanted to purchase a handgun and so, yeah, this is, this is terrible. It, it, it's just, it's garbage. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that they are holding her feet to the fire. I'm not sure, uh, if, uh, what the, what the mechanism of action for this, uh, disciplinary action, uh, is if they, cause obviously it's a pretty split, uh, uh, house and, uh, or, or Congress in the state of North Carolina. So, uh, I, I'd be interested to see if this is something they could go by with a bare majority or, uh, or, uh, or what, and, and what this ends up doing, but just the headlines that it's creating is, uh, is damage enough. Okay. I feel like you're, I don't know, not burying the lead, but, but you're not drilling down to the really bad thing here. Okay, okay. So, so Marcus claims that these denials, um, you know the 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 two thousand three hundred and seventy whatever. Um, mm. so so they passed the next background check. So they filled out the form forty four seventy three. Everything was fine, but they failed the permit application. Mm. Now, how does one fail the permit application while passing NICS? Well, again, what it must come down to is 
that good character thing, which is all completely subjective. And so, you know, as one of these articles say, it doesn't mean that over 2,000 people couldn't purchase a handgun. It just means some of these reasons for denial, such as they didn't pay the permit fee, or they didn't sign the release, or for whatever reason they failed to provide the required documentation. Um, I expect in some cases people went and wanted to buy a pistol and went through the process and then realized, oh, wait, I'm supposed to get a pistol purchase permit? I didn't know this. This is my very first time. And so they had to stop the procedure, go get the triple P, and then come back and buy it. And so what I feel she is claiming is that... She's claiming that these people were denied for a very good reason, and otherwise, you know, th there would be all these over 2,000 unsafe people. And, and she's basically saying the fact that the pistol purchase permit denied them is proof just by itself, I, I guess prima facie might be the right Latin for it, is proof that we need the pistol purchase permit to deny these people. It's it's circular logic. There is no reason for this. Someone passed um, the the background check performed by the FBI, but that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this is very definitely. It's not just arguing in bad faith. Um, the reason for this lawsuit is because Paul Vallone did a uh, Request for Information Act, and he said she misrepresented this data, and so when it came time for the law to pass, or to be voted on, she, well, he's making the claim that she knew and she lied, and we'll find out about that in a bit, but the point was, based on this misinformation, um, the, uh, the, the, the governor vetoed it, or perhaps um, they didn't get enough votes to override. And so he's, he's saying, look, she didn't just argue in bad faith. She engaged in, in lawmaking in bad faith, and we want her censored. Cen mm -hmm. Censured, my bad. <laughs> Those are very easy to mess up. Yes, <laughs> drastically different words. Yes, drastically different. And and so I just I I feel that, that is a very important point because th this is when we are passing laws, we don't pass them on emotion. We pass them on facts. And she was using misinformation whether or not she did it in full knowledge that it was misinformation is something I don't yet know, but she uh, use this information to influence uh, legislation, and that is something which should not be allowed to stand. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I, I don't know if anything's going to come from it, but, um, uh, well, see, I recall that Paul Vallone, and um, I, I believe it was Paul Vallone, or was it someone else who sued Katie Couric? Mm. Um. I mean, I know it was the the Virginia Citizens Defense League. So okay, I, I, that, that was that was a different state than because this is North Carolina. Uh, um, yes, but well, the point where I was going with that was, you know, this is someone who you know clearly sticks to his guns and is willing to take things to court, and so it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. Yes, it will be, and, and I will I will go a step further in pointing out that 
by her, whether these numbers are cooked or not, you know, and they, they very well meet you, you, you gave an interesting point is how many of these people were people that, uh, that went into the gun shop. I would assume most gun shops in North Carolina would ask to see either your carry permit or your pistol purchase permit. Once you're looking at a handgun and deciding to, to do the paperwork before they, you start putting pen and paper to a, a 4473, uh, but either way, that that could there could be other angles on why someone is denied, even though they pass the NICS, besides uh, being just uh, wrongfully denied their right to uh, to to keep and bear arms uh, by this Jim Crow era law. But either way, that volume of the over two thousand three hundred people, I mean, that's not a small number, uh, and that's that's just over the last year. So it's not, this is not a, a large aggregate. This shows how wrong the law is because it's not like these people are all the town drunks and they're, they're serious alcoholics, but they have enough common sense that they don't go drinking and driving and they don't go hitting people or, or uh, various things that get people in trouble when they're uh, habitually drunk. Uh, but but everybody knows that most of the time they're loaded and therefore they should not have a handgun though. There's nothing stopping them from buying a shotgun or a rifle. Uh, it's just no matter how you slice it, you can't make that 2,300 people anything but wrongfully denied their rights. It would, it would be less damning if it was more sparing, if there was a hundred people over the, over the last year, well, then maybe you could argue that, oh, well, maybe there is something about all those people that maybe it's not justifiable. Maybe it's like the, the man from Massachusetts that we talked about several shows ago, who clearly had friends that were involved in drugs. And so he had a lot of close associates that were arrested on drug charges and he had been found by police at various drug deals, even though under at no point in any of these interactions with the police did this person do anything illegal that he didn't have drugs on him. He was not buying drugs. They did not catch him using drugs. He didn't have drugs in his system. He just was there. You know, it, when you look at the number of cases on that guy, it looks really bad. But again, if you've got a person that's like that and that you're saying, geez, they have a gun or they want to get a gun and I don't want them to have it. Well then assign an officer to them. Have, you know, put the guy under, un under surveillance, put him under a fine tooth comb. Police are allowed to do this and catch him doing something bad. Because if you can can scrutinize somebody and not catch them doing that. They say we commit like five felonies a day or, or whatever it is. It's just, it's just for lack of trying. Mm -hmm. When I was in police explorers in high school, it was one of the very, very first meetings. And our officer was explaining to us the, well, again, it's it's been a long time. It was last century. But I believe the purpose of this particular presentation was the importance of, of discretion on the part of the officer. And she said, I can sit outside of a parking lot and I can watch people leave. And I can guarantee you that nine times out of ten, I can find something that person did to pull them over just leaving the parking lot. 
And admittedly, that's that's not a felony, but still, you know, we've got all these traffic regulations and we don't know how many of them we are breaking. And, you know, again, that's that's just the, the, the traffic stuff. Then we get into the misdemeanors and the felonies and oh boy. So, yeah, we, we definitely have a problem with way too many regulations in this society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and enough that, you know, I have I have I, there was one point when my wife, uh, she lost a credit card and uh, and she was alerted by the credit card company because somebody had filled up like a thousand dollars worth of gasoline on, on her credit card. And they said, this seems odd. And she says, it does seem odd because it's not I don't have it. It. It was. I think she left it in a uh, in a, in a vending machine uh, when she was buying a subway pass. I think, if I remember correctly. And so, part of the lost and lost and stolen credit card thing, and to get the the credit card company not to charge her for all of the the fraudulent charges, is to have a police report attached to the the theft and the illegal use of the card for the credit card companies to use, and. And so the police had come over to uh, to our apartment at the time, and I was very nervous, not because I had done anything wrong, but because I'm a gun owner in Massachusetts, and and there are so many gun laws here, and they don't make any sense. That is one of those like, and and there there's none that are, that are minor infractions. If there's if you screw up anything with a firearm here in Massachusetts, you're pretty much looking at a felony no matter what. And so, just the idea that there's a police officer in my house and one of those like, oh, I see you have, you know, ammunition not in their factory boxes. You know that's against the law in Massachusetts. No, I I didn't. Well, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Yeah, the we have. So many laws that that the average person sh- could not even expect to know all of the laws that they may or may not be breaking. Jeez, five felonies a day. Yes, <laughs> if if not more. Uh, uh so uh, you know, I I, I I really want to do something like speaking of felonies. Unfortunately, I can't. But you know what? <laughs> That's not gonna stop me. Um, so you know. Without saying anything that's legally actionable, we're going to pivot from five felonies a day to David Chipman. And and unfortunately, Weird, this is the very last episode of Chipman Watch 2021. Chipman Watch! Chipman Watch! Yes, this is the very, very, very last episode before we could come up with like a theme song. <laughs> but uh, yes, D- David, David Chipman ha- ha- has been yoked. <laughs> he has been cast off. His uh, his uh, nomination for the ATF director has been withdrawn. I believe it was withdrawn by the White House. And uh, yeah, he he's gone. And uh, this happened. Uh, uh, I think a couple Friday. days after the last. Yeah. So this is it's it's this is it's been a while uh, since this happened. But I'm glad because I wanted to see if there was anything else that was going to happen. And in fact. There has been nothing. No one has spoke of it. There's been some, there were a whole bunch of somewhat vague mainstream media reports on his withdrawal. Uh, it was my, my wife, uh, came home and said, Oh yeah, I, I was, uh, I was, I was scrolling through my, uh, my phone on my lunch break and saw that, uh, David Chipman has been withdrawn. And I'm like, what did it say on why he was withdrawn? 
And she's, oh, they were like blaming the NRA. <laughs> yeah, blaming the NRA. <laughs> well, interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, I have here the statement from the president on Chipman's mm-hmm. withdrawal, and they didn't blame the NRA. Um, well, they didn't say the words NRA. Um, they blamed the Republicans, and they mentioned that they were moving in lockstep with gun manufacturers. Now, maybe to the anti-gun side, gun manufacturer equals NRA, uh, but we know that's not true. I mean, the the NRA is not the gun lobby. Um, in fact, watching what's going on with the NRA now, it doesn't really seem to represent much of anyone except Wayne LaPierre, but I digress. Uh, so yeah, it, once again, it's, it's, it's the fault of, of the big bad Republicans in Congress and not the fact that David Chipman is, uh, well, let's see, what can I say without getting into trouble? Well, I mean, he has been accused of being racist. Um, I don't know if he received any sort of, um, punishment for that. But it's definitely on his record how he said racist things involving the success of black agents at passing a test. And um, there are reports that he said, uh, such as he made tasteless jokes involving dead bodies at Waco. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is the, um, this is absolutely true, how he is completely been in bed with the anti-gun lobby, not just with Bloomberg, but also with ShotSpotter, which, by the way, has been proven not to work. So mm-hmm. the man was absolutely a partisan hack. Uh, he was in bed with the anti-gun forces, and putting him in charge of it would be like putting a homophobe in charge of investigating race crimes. Good riddance to bad rubbish. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and uh, interestingly enough, that the the White House blames Republicans, but it was in fact Democrats that were the one that torpedoed him. Is that yes, the Republicans immediately came forward and said this is a terrible nominee, and we all do not support him. And furthermore, when uh, Stephen Kotowski's reports on the racist allegations against him, uh, it was it was called forward that to have a second uh, a second Senate hearing on which case. I would assume they would be able to uh, get a hold of his uh, his personnel files since they all have the top secret clearance and all that stuff, so that it could be uh, seen by them and 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 they could uh, take the knowing no parts without having to release it to the public. Even though there is a Freedom of Information Act request out there, which will probably show up in you know the next few days. Now that now that he is uh, he is he is gone from the limelight. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, uh, Angus King had, uh, had backed away from it. Uh, Joe Manchin had, uh, had, uh, backed away from, uh, backed away from Chipman. And I'm sure there were many other Democrats that were not as vocal as, uh, these, mm-hmm. the ones that did speak out. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was very clearly, this was, this is the Democrats nominee to, uh, to lose. And, uh, they, boy, they, did they. they yeah, they absolutely did. Is uh, it was definitely probably the hope of them because they knew this was going to be a partisan, you know, nomination. It, it shouldn't be. Again, that's one of the hopes of the Assorted Calibers podcast is we make Second Amendment uh, nonpartisan again. It used to not be partisan, and it is partisan now, and it shouldn't be. It should be both parties should be in favor of the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, 
but yes, they knew it was going to, it was going to fall on party lines, but they thought, Oh, maybe we can flip a couple of, uh, of, uh, softer on the second amendment uh uh republicans and of course keep all of the democrats and it it went just the opposite is they definitely lost a few democrats and they got none of the republicans and so he is uh he's gone uh it will be interesting to see what happens with david chipman especially uh, as I said with my uh, my last interview with Stephen Gutowski on just the idea of the how could they have not known about these? Like, how could they have not pulled his personnel file or even asked him about his personnel file before they nominated him during the uh, the vetting period is beyond me. But the idea of you know, some controversial nominees end up getting cabinet positions or, or, uh, bureaucratic positions kind of as a, as a consolation prize or, uh, for putting themselves forward. But I've got to wonder if David Chipman's not going to just be cast out and not just cast out of, of, uh, of politics, but cast out of anti-gun lobbying as well just for the nature of these allegations. Well, I mean, somebody needs to be blamed for it, and you know that it's not going to fall on Bloomberg. No. <laughs> because um, blame, like feces, flows downhill. Yes, so it'll be interesting to see. Oh, and, and one more bit, just again to add to my little conspiracy. I had not noticed this before, but uh, uh, just this morning I just decided to go and look uh, I've been meaning to, but uh, but I hadn't got a chance to. But I said, you know what? Today's a good a time as any. Let's go look at the various anti-gun YouTube uh, pages because they all put out uh, pro David Chipman uh, uh, videos to say support you know support his nomination, call your senators, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so forth. And uh, not only are they still there, I was I was wondering if they were going to pull them, mm-hmm. but I realized that every town did not put up any pro David Chipman media whatsoever. I mean, they might've done some, some, uh, some tech stuff, but this is all on YouTube, their YouTube channel. There was no David Chipman, uh, support video from every town, but there were videos on, uh, Giffords, which of course is David Chipman's, I believe still current employer. I have not heard of him, of him being terminated from, uh, from that group. I believe he is still drawing a paycheck from Giffords. Uh, at this uh, at the time of this recording uh but also um uh brady the brady campaign and the interesting thing i found was that they're the exact same video <laughs> giffords and brady both produce or were both hosting the exact same video of elect david chipman and uh, i just again found that very very telling since they both those groups have no relation whatsoever except for their support of the you know banning guns and and adding restrictions onto gun owners and uh the again the only change that has happened is since the brady campaign turned into just brady and i think they like they're brady united or something but i don't know they don't haven't really been as open about this other name the change that they've done and uh americans for responsible solutions changed to giffords giffords yes <laughs> Sorry, it's got that exclamation mark. Yes. <laughs> and then, uh, and at that point in time, suddenly they went from all kind of scrapping it out and trying to vie for first place 
uh, with with the other anti-gun groups and tried to trying to stand aside to now all of a sudden working completely in lockstep so much that they're producing the exact same video for that, which is even funnier too when you realize that Brady has no connection whatsoever to David Chipman. Uh, he he worked for every town and uh, the mayor's uh, uh, mayor's against uh, mayor's against illegal guns, and uh, and then worked directly for Gifford. So this is Gifford's employee. You would think they could sit him down and actually produce a very intimate video of of him, you know, as a, as a glamour shot since he is one of their employees. But instead, it's the same, you know just very generic support David Chipman video on both websites. So <laughs> I was deeply amused by that. Mm, it, it's sort of like when you have a buddy in high school or college, it's like, Hey, let me see your homework. All right, man, but change it a little bit so that the teacher doesn't know you copied me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, this, they're the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's exact same thing. <sighs> it's, all, it's almost like they're being run being being run by one man <laughs> one tiny tiny man so we've just been talking about dishonesty in politics and it's a big part of anti-rights activism the fear it sows can be a major force multiplier xander brings us his independent thoughts on this very issue welcome to independent thoughts with yours truly xander opal Fear is a nasty, insidious thing. There's a time and a place and a use for it. In the right place and time, it lets you know that there's this person about to threaten your life and limb or that of someone in your care. In the wrong place, in the wrong time, it gets you to hand over power to someone else. In the moment, a criminal uses fear to get the person who is unable to counter their ability to do harm to do what the criminal wants. Give up money, information, or one's own body. A politician will gladly stoke the flames of fear to get people to go along with their plan. It could be something to keep, uh, air quotes, those people, air quotes, from being, again, air quotes, dangerous. It could be to prevent a scary-seeming tool or device from being used. A friendly, helpful smile and a hand offered to take something, you really don't need it that much, honest, to stop these horrible things from happening. Well, If it didn't work that time, obviously you need to give up another thing to keep those horrible things from happening. Fear darkens the view of the world, removing hope and the will to be decent to those around you. It feeds on itself, urging you to watch horrible things happening to others, making you think that you're a moment away from it happening to you. Click the next link to see the next horrible thing, and another thing to be afraid of after these messages. Preparations and consideration break the cycle of fear when you don't give power to others, but rather make reasonable efforts to be ready for terrible situations, whether the right tool is a gun, or a toolbox in the trunk, or simply confidence and the benefit of the doubt. Fear is something that should be acknowledged, considered, then dealt with. Resolve the situation, but don't give power to someone else. The best and bravest of us all were afraid in the worst moments of their lives. The bravery comes from moving past the fear, having acknowledged it, without having fallen to it. Without being ruled by fear, we can reach out a hand to take not power, but the hand of another who needs help in the moment. It is the way to deal with it that lifts everyone up and makes a better life for all. Have fun, be safe, 
I hope I gave you something to think about. This really reminds me of something I used to hear in the early 2000s, but I really haven't heard that since is the, oh, you must be scared all the time if you carry a gun. Meaning the idea of you have, you know, the idea of tactics, you're carrying a gun for self-protection. So therefore you're kind of acknowledging the dangers of the world. And, and by not carrying a gun, you could somehow put your head in blissful ignorance, which I mean, I guess ignorance is bliss and, and that, could work out all right but i don't really know how how uh, how easy it is to propagate that uh but it's always been my statement is that having firearms i found has always been it's not even comforting is the right word but i find that i only experience fear i really only get scared and and disquieted when i'm out of options while there are options going on I, I, I've, I've, my eyes on the prize and I'm working, whether that be, uh, my wife one time saw me nick an artery while I was, while I was opening a package and, uh, it was just in my finger, but, uh, but oh, it was Spartan. And I just like immediately went, oh crap, put my hand underneath the sink and rinsed it off to, uh, just to clear it, clear it, clear out the wound immediately grabbed a paper towel and applied direct pressure and all that. And I told her, all right, go in the bathroom and get the, uh, get the, get the bandages. You know, meanwhile, I'm wiggling my finger, making sure the tendons intact and all of that. And then when that was all done, pulled, you know, pulled the paper towel away, soft, the bleeding was, it started to clot and it started to clock and then quickly put a very, very tight bandage on the finger. And then we're there. Okay. Thank you so much. She just went, wow. Well, that went quick. And meanwhile, I'm cleaning like blood off the floor. <laughs> and uh, she said, wow, you worked quick on that. And I said, well, yeah, I cut myself and I know what to do. <laughs> all of those things are all things that I do when, when, when I cut myself. And at no point in time, you know, after I was done, I was like, Ooh, yeah, that was, that was an artery. Ho- hopefully this will, uh, this will hold and I don't need to go to a hospital. Uh, and uh, it turned out to be just fine. Yeah, you uh, must have just barely nicked it. Wow. Yeah, and again, it was it was it's it was on it's on the it was in at the inside of my middle finger, and so it's not like it's a big one. Uh, but again, it was I I went I went deep enough that well, it well, was yeah. Pulsing. I mean, you hit an artery. Those things yeah. are not on the surface for a very good reason. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, and so I'm kind of surprised you didn't need stitches. Yeah, no, I just I got the got the bandage on nice and tight, and that uh, that kept it all closed, so it worked out uh, it worked out well in my favor. But but it and, wasn't. I mean, it was obviously very deep. I mean, I would think that you know maybe you punctured some muscle or something. You didn't need any of that stitched together. There there isn't much muscle in your fingers. It's all done with tendons. Hence huh. the reason why if you can still wiggle your finger, you're you're pretty much in good shape. Huh. Okay then. <laughs> Yeah, your hand is essentially a marionette puppet. It's the all it's all like the muscles in your forearm that are that are going through. It was just like I uh I before I had my carry permit, I was always carrying a uh a a K bar TDI. And uh and I gave one to my wife as well, and I'm just like, yeah, if uh if anybody ever grabs you, yeah, just take this thing and if you know, if, if nothing else presents itself, work this on the inside of their arm. It will, it will make their, you, if you do it enough times, it'll, it'll, you'll eventually get something that'll make that hand stop working and then you can get away. That reminds me of a specific scene from face off. 
Actually, it's been a while since I've seen that one. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it too. But, um, okay. So the John Travolta character. No, no, no. I've I've got to get this right because okay, for people who don't know, Face Off is it's it's the ultimate in nineties edgy. So you've got a bad guy. And th- there's a, g- a good guy cop who needs to um, infiltrate his organization. And so they take the bad guy's face off, literally, surgically. And they take the good guy's face off and-, and they preserve that. And they put the bad guy's face on the good guy, magically, so that the good guy can then infiltrate and stop whatever terror attacks. And then someone breaks in and, and gets the bad guy out and then he puts on the good guy's face. Um so so you've got John Travolta, he's acting, but so he's in the guise of the good guy, but he's actually the bad guy. And and he has gone to the good guy's house and is living with his family, and so he's got a t- he's got a teenage daughter and she's having boy problems and 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 I don't mean boy problems as in does he like me or not, but it's like the guy you know, he's getting handsy or something like that. And so he gives her, I believe it's a butterfly knife, shows her how to use it and says something like, you know, the next time he touches you in a way you don't like, um, stab it into the, like into his thigh and twist, you know, and twist is the important part uh, Mm -hmm. because he's saying, you know, that'll prevent the wound from closing and it should, you know, bleed a lot as well as hurting. Uh, and so that's that's exactly what I was thinking about when when you gave the TDI to your wife. It's like, yeah, someone comes at you, just you know, stab and twist. Yep, just <laughs> stab. And in the case of dri- driving to somebody's thigh, stab and twist. That's a good way to get the femoral artery, and it'll bleed a lot, as in it'll bleed all of it. <laughs> <laughs> it'll get the needle on e. <laughs> but yeah, and uh, one last thing that I want to point out, and uh, you know, I. I was tempted because I was I was hearing some uh, some other points uh, being made for some other political issues, but you know what? I'm just going to keep the the waters clean. But there are so many political issues where the people arguing in favor of their uh, issue du jour is to make a dishonest point, is to make a straw man argument for the opposition, uh, and. Uh, in order to get through, we have the, the pistol purchase permit claiming that it, it all will save lives or it'll keep bad people from getting guns, which is garbage. And I just got to say that like the, it's frustrating when the other side is, is, is lying and being dishonest and trying to stoke just unnatural fear in their, uh, in, in their followers. But at least that's good proof to know that, they know they're on the wrong side. That's their last refuge is just, you know, tell, tell people that, that, that the, these, these, uh, AR 15s are machine guns. And if we pass the 1994 assault weapons ban, it's banning machine guns. That's the last refuge of a scoundrel. All right. So now we're going to circle back to David. No, he's not coming back online. Uh, a, a pre-recorded segment of his, and he's going to talk about, well, a firearm solution in search of a problem. Hi, and welcome to Gun Lovers and Other Strangers. 
In this segment, I'd like to talk about one of the more unusual firearms to come out of the early post-World War II period, the Dardic. In September 1954, inventor David Dardic of New York City submitted two patents. Number 2,865,126 for an open chamber gun, and number 2,983,223 for ammunition for open chamber guns. Four years later, the patent for the soon-to-be-named Dardic pistol was granted. It took a bit over two more years before the associated patent for the ammunition was approved. The Dardic pistol is an unusual and unique combination of semi-automatic and revolver. Cartridges are fed from a magazine in the grip like a traditional semi-automatic pistol. Then they're fed into a three-chambered cylinder, sort of like a traditional revolver, except the cylinder is open-sided and cut to accept triangular cartridges called trowns. Loading of the Dardic pistol is accomplished via a loading gate at the top of the left-side grip. Trowns were made of a strong plastic and functioned like a traditional cartridge case. In addition to the preloaded and reloadable trowns, another version was made that accepted standard 38 special cartridges, allowing regular ammunition to be used in the pistol. Dardics were manufactured in both 22 long rifle and 38 special. There have been some references to other calibers, but I wasn't able to find evidence that they were actually manufactured. They were also available with interchangeable barrels. The top strap of the Dardic was a solid piece of metal and acted to close the open-sided chamber in the cylinder during firing. The barrel and top strap could be readily removed for cleaning and maintenance as well as swapping out different barrel lengths. In addition, there were several different versions of the Dardic with varying ammunition capacities as well as barrel lengths. There was even a carbine conversion consisting of a shoulder stock and a top strap barrel assembly. There were experiments to scale up the trowned concept for use in military automatic cannon, but other than reports of a few prototypes, I haven't found information on any further development. Unfortunately, the idea of the Dardic never caught on, partially due to the lack of aesthetics overcoming the ingenuity of the design, and after less than three years of production, the Dardic was discontinued. Remaining specimens can go for thousands of dollars at auction, and trowns generally sell for over $10 a piece. The Dardic pistol is occasionally mentioned in books, and trowns are infrequently found at gun shows. Other than that, this remarkable design has almost completely fallen out of memory. Keep your eyes open, and you might come across a unique piece of firearms history. I can't blame Xander this time. You know what? I can. Weird is not that clever. A thing that... could be two things. I'm pretty sure he is. That about wraps up this segment. If you have any questions for me or suggestions for future segments or a comment on a past segment, please post them on the Assorted Calibers podcast Facebook page and Aaron or Weird will make sure I get them. I'm also a contributor on the Blue Collar Prepping blog, which can be found at bluecollarprepping.blogspot.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. I'm David, and this is Gun Lovers and Other Strangers. All right, so that was a, an interesting segment, and you know, I I know about the the, the Dardic and the Trowns, and I, I I seem to recall we've talked about it. We've talked about that in more or less the same breath as the Jarajit pistol. It's one of these really weird guns that was uh, an evolutionary dead end on the tech tree. But one thing David didn't address, and I don't know why, is the big burning question of, but what was this? For 
what what was the point of of, of this overly engineered revolver but not with triangular ammunition what what solution was it trying to address why well when it comes to the dartic pistol the solution that uh, that it was trying to address was how can i sell this patented technology to the civilian market uh because uh it's my understanding and i i'm i'm dealing with a lot of uh of kind of there's not really a lot of documentation left from uh from dartic it's my understanding and it happens to be my mechanic uh claims i I haven't verified this but that his father actually worked with david dartic in uh in actually making the trowns for the guns and he actually saw some demonstrations of some of dartic's uh military technology and the idea being that when you have this rotational cylinder and it is an open top cylinder you can rotate the rounds in and rotate them out so if you think of a belt-fed gun uh in the case of a standard belt-fed gun the round is getting stripped off the belt put into the chamber fired and then ejected back out so there's that um uh in line with the barrel uh plane of motion that needs to be done not with a dartic because it simply rotates in is fired and then rotates out and uh we actually have, uh, we dug up some videos of some Dardic machine guns being fired. They're crappy VHS rips. Uh, so unfortunately, they're not like really, really in-depth Ian from Forgotten Weapons uh, type video where they go over all the little parts and minutia and all that. But the idea being that it could get a very, very high cyclic rate and presumably a higher reliability. I mean, if you have a failure to fire or even a case rupture, it should just clear itself all the same. Uh, of course, the downside is if you're using a single barrel and doing minigun rates of fire, miniguns have multiple barrels, number one, so that it can load and unload itself very quickly, uh, but also so that the barrels have time to cool in between shots because it's a very, very high cyclic rates will just eat the rifling right out of the barrel very, very quickly. Yeah, I've seen machine so, guns where the barrels begin to glow, mm-hmm. and that's when you need to change them. Yes, and you can actually see the rounds traveling down them. There's actually streaks going down them. So, yeah, the that's my understanding, is that Dardic was really trying to make machine guns using the trounds. And just in the meantime, while he was waiting for the government to to accept it, and of course, we know with all like the pistol trials and machine gun trials, and like there's this like new like Sig Sauer machine gun that's being tried out, and who knows if it's going to ever a- ever make it uh, into into the front lines. He was going to sell pistols and carbines to the the uh, the the American public, and of course, he couldn't sell them machine guns at the time, so he came up with the, the semi-automatic magazine fed revolver mm. okay well that certainly does explain it and wow the dartic is a powerfully ugly pistol oh it is homely we actually ryan and i did a uh, and i'm trying to remember if it was like if we had tj uh, gautier on there or not as well there was a third person and i i can't even remember who it was but uh, yeah, there was a bunch of us, and we kind of did a our, our our top picks for the most attractive handgun, and we all agreed that the um, it was the uh, the Colt Python, the Colt Python by far. Oh god, they're beautiful. 
and uh, but the ugliest guns. We all essentially decided that any gun where the barrel is just naked and hanging out front, like the Dardic, like the Nambu, <laughs> were all just fugly. But doesn't the broom handle Mauser also have a barrel that's just hanging out naked like that? Yeah, it does. But uh, for yeah, that one. But I it's different like somehow. Yeah, it's different somehow. I do like the broom handle. The the, I mean, they look. Honestly speaking, I I liked the broom handle a lot less until I actually handled one and realized that they look really big and kludgy when you look at them, in, you know, in pictures. And then when you pick one up, you're like, you know what? That's that actually makes a lot of sense. Mm, of course, I can't look at a broom handle Mauser without seeing Han Solo's pistol, and so it always looks strange when it doesn't have that little conical whatever <laughs> right at the muzzle. Yeah, I, th- I think that's like a that's like an Enfield or or Bren gun flash hider. I actually, for a moment, thought you were gonna explain what it was within Star Wars. Oh, every time I've I've read the tech behind the various things, but it's one of those like it seems like a lot of the people that retcon the technology they come up with a lot of good ideas, but there's always holes in it such as like the blaster cocoon that that's created by the 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 stormtroopers armor but really in fact the stormtroopers armor does nothing <laughs> like it doesn't stop blasters a wookiee can still knock you out you know with his bare hands you know and i get that wookiees are amazingly strong but still you're wearing futuristic armor uh, it, it literally provides as much protection as the armor that the the five hundred first legion wear. Yes, it's pure plot armor. <laughs> so weird. Who doesn't have plot armor? Uh, well, uh, Matt's friend. <laughs> uh, so one of the worst bugbears of safety of any kind is complacency. And Matt from Geeks, Gadgets, and Guns tells us a story of his friend who unfortunately got complacent. <laughs> Hey, Matt with Geeks, Gadgets, and Guns here. Just wanted to give you guys a quick little thought. When it comes to the shooting sports and ego, please check it at the door. I recently had an event in my life happen where somebody happened to call me asking how to do something with a gun. And I, it was unloading a Glock. And I say, hey, make sure to check the gun is unloaded and be very, very specific that it's unloaded before you attempt to take it down. Because there are lots of accidents that happen with taking down a Glock because you have to pull the trigger to release the sear so the slide comes off. And I just get one of these from this person. And I go through and I explain exactly why it happens. And I could tell that they were like, I'm a gun guy. I have guns. I know what I'm talking about. Less than 15 minutes later, Ow! the person shot themselves taking down a Glock. No one, none of us are perfect when it comes to safety. Never, ever, ever do we say, I know what I'm doing enough that I can take this down without checking. We always need to check. This is one of those things where, I get it, you've taken tons of classes, but that doesn't mean that you can't make a simple mistake. You need to be careful. And when you say, oh, I know what I'm doing, I don't need to be careful, that's when you're going to have your biggest problem and your body is going to pay the tax for your ego. It really comes down to that. Not to mention there are certain people, if you talk to actual trainers, they have a big problem when people come to their class, 
and they have their ego up front. They don't check out the door and say, hey, I'm here to learn something. They decide, I'm great, I'm going here to show off. No, leave your ego at the door, because even if it seems very basic to you, you might actually learn something that you missed in all your other classes that maybe that trainer didn't know or didn't mention. It is all about being open to learning and being open to even pay attention to the little things so you don't make a mistake. Luckily, the person that did this, they're perfectly fine. They ended up with a few stitches, which could have ended so much worse. You've seen the pictures that go around on the internet when somebody shot themselves in the knee or the leg or the foot or an arm. I mean, when you've seen somebody's hand split in twain because they weren't paying attention, their ego told them, hey, no, it's safe. You know what you're doing. You don't have to check. Check. Always check. Because, sorry guys, we're human. We're not perfect. Your ego does not act as a suit of armor. What actually acts as a suit of armor is being thorough and thoughtful about your safety procedures. I really hope this has given you something to think about so you don't have to pay the price for ego the hard way. When I instruct people on firearm safety and and I mention always consider the firearm loaded and, and I go through Okay, you need to direct the slide, you need to check, you need to not just look but use your finger. I, I make, it's not really a joke, I say it like a joke, but honestly it's true. I say, if you're the tiniest bit OCD, this will work in your favor. You, know, you need to develop that almost OCD compulsion of, is the gun unloaded, let me check. Mm-hmm. There's a, it, it now a defunct webcomic called Failure to Fire, which uh, irritated a lot of people. Um, but, but there was one where, um, the main character who worked in the gun store was explaining the rules to uh, a new customer and he coined the phrase, I believe it was, um, asshole bullet fairies or something like that. It's like, if you leave the, leave the gun alone for a moment, asshole fairies will appear and will load the gun. So you always need to, to make, uh, to, to check, to make sure that the fairies haven't loaded your gun. Which is a, a funny way to put it, but funny things have a way of sticking in people's minds. And whereas the whole, well, you've got to check it every time, people may go, pfft, whatever. They, they may actually remember the phrase asshole fairy and look it up. Yeah. And yet it does seem silly. Like there'll be times when I'll be working on a gun down in, you know, down in my armory. So it's just me all alone. I, I, I've got control of the workspace and all that, and I'll set a gun down and then I'll pick it back up not that long ago and I'll clear it. Or I'm going to be doing some dry firing and I'll clear the gun and then get ready to do the dry firing and realize, you know what? I was not giving it my complete and utter undivided attention. At some point during that clearing, my mind wandered and I noticed that my mind wandered. Let's do it again just in case. And of course, it's still clear. And these and, and you know you can also further you know dabble into the every time before the gun goes into the holster i drop the uh, i drop the magazine and check to see that it's loaded and then i do a press check on the uh, on the gun if it's a pistol uh to uh to to make sure that there's a there's a round in the chamber because god forbid i need to use the gun and i pull a gun that is not loaded that's especially a gun that's completely empty that really doesn't do any good uh for anybody and it could be the end of your life uh 
uh, but also, yeah, I, I was over at a friend's house and he mentioned that he had, uh, a Colt vest pocket that is now my Colt vest pocket. And he said, yeah, I got this old Colt. Are you, are you, are you interested in it? I said, you know what? Let me have a look. And he pulls it out and he hands it to me. Uh, and this gun does not have a traditional slide lock. You can lock the slide back, but it's essentially using the safety. And so him handing the gun with the slide closed isn't quite as much of a faux pas as, it, as with other guns. And, uh, so I picked up the gun and I looked at it and then I realized, oh, I should clear this. And I racked the slide and, uh, interesting enough, it was a, a 25 caliber, uh, Glazer's uh, blue tip safety slug that <laughs> popped out of it, which I, I gotta say, I, uh, I, I gotta wonder that this is uh, unfortunately a friend of mine that has passed away. I've got to see if, uh, in his ammo collection that his, uh, that, that his, uh, his daughter and son-in-law inherited, if that, if a box of, of, uh, 25 ACP blue tips exists, cause I am very curious on if anything that round would do, but either way. I, uh, I pulled the slide back and in fact, there was a round of the chamber and it popped out and we were both very surprised and he was mortified. He was like, Oh my God, I, 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 I didn't remember that I'd even loaded it. Didn't even think that it was still, it was loaded at all. And, uh, I'm sorry. I should have checked that. And I said, yeah, it's all good. I checked it. We're fine. No one got hurt, but that's why you do that. And when a moment like that happens where you go to rack the slide and just look at an empty chamber and stick your finger into an empty chamber and suddenly a live round pops out, suddenly you go, oh, yeah. And I've heard people at gun shops where someone has pulled out a gun to to sell it and say, all right, can you clear? Don't don't hand me the the closed gun, you know, you know, please open open the action before you hand it to me. And the person goes, oh, don't be silly. It's unloaded and opens the action and a live round comes out (laughs) and everybody goes ghostly pale. So it turns out that uh, failure to fire. Um, I don't know if there's a problem with hosting or what, but uh, all the links to it are dead. You know, error establishing a database connection. So I don't know if if I can ever find that comic, I will. But right now, I've I've got to leave y'all hanging. Sorry, folks. Well, I started this episode, so I'm going to finish it. Thanks to each and every one of our listeners, and a very special thanks to all our supporters on Patreon. To become a Patreon patron, go to patreon.com slash podcast to sign up. Patrons get an early release of the podcast, plus bonus content like our hilarious blooper reels, and the ACP film tracks, and the ACP magnum. Also, please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us on the platform of your choice, and share the show with your friends, both online and off. Now, you can get more from me at my various blogs. That would be lurkingrhythmically.blogspot.com, bluecollarprepping.blogspot.com, pinkpistols.org, and blazingsword.org. And what about this other guy who's here on the podcast with me? I'm superfluous. (laughs) I have other stuff, but you know what? It really doesn't matter. You know, you used to be the podcast bicycle, and now no one will take you for a ride. I know. Isn't it sad? It is. But who does matter is Nate Spencer, because he does our music. I used to host this show, but <laughs> but this time I don't. <laughs> My usefulness is assorted, and so is this podcast. Yar. Good night, V-Mateys. Sleep well. I'll probably kill y'all in the morning. Now.